All right, John 16. I uh, thought we were going to finish this chapter this morning. Uh, we can need one more week. Uh, we're getting there, though. And uh, we're almost done with the upper room discourse. It comes to an end in, in John 16. Uh, and uh, we're going to look at the last passage this morning and then finish it up next week. Last week, we were in verses 16 through 22, in which we learned about Christ's promise of immovable resurrection joy. In those verses, Jesus transitions the disciples to the events that are immediately before them, the cross and the the resurrection. So he's preparing them now for what's about to take place. And he does it by giving them this puzzling statement. You remember back in chapter 16, verse 16, a little while and you'll see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. And the disciples are, are bewildered by this statement. What, what does that mean? So Jesus went on to explain a bit more what he meant by, by that statement. In just a little while, the disciples will see Christ no longer. It will be a time of great sorrow and agony and confusion for the disciples. And it's referring to his cross. But then just a little while longer after that, they'll see Jesus again. He'll come to them. And their hearts will rejoice. And he's referring to his resurrection. Now, we who have the perspective of the resurrection, the events have happened, right? We know the cross and the resurrection. We can clearly see what Jesus meant by this saying. But at this point, the disciples still do not get it. And they will not get it until after the resurrection. They have no category at this point for a crucified and a risen Messiah. But once they understand the resurrection, then Christ's cross will make sense. And all that Christ has taught them will make sense. And that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The unique ministry of the Spirit will help them to, through the events of Christ's cross, make sense of everything Christ taught them. But that brings us to our passage this morning. And in these verses, Jesus will now point beyond the resurrection to the life that awaits disciples following the resurrection. That's why I've entitled this Life After the Resurrection. This is where every one of us lives, after the resurrection. The disciples here are certainly weighed down. They're filled with sorrow and distress and confusion. They don't know what it all means. They still cannot grasp much of what Jesus has taught them, but that is all about to change. So this morning, Jesus will conclude the upper room discourse with two comforts, which await disciples following the resurrection. And these are found in verses 23 through 33. So this this week, we're going to look at the first comfort, and the next week, we will look at the At the second comfort. The first one is found in verses 23 through 28, in which Jesus promises his disciples extraordinary post resurrection gifts. Extraordinary post resurrection gifts. He's going to give us in these verses two privileges which will be granted to disciples after the resurrection. Two gifts that they are going to need while Christ is away. Two things that will be the source 
of their and your complete joy and will solve the problem of their despair. What is it? Well, number one, it's clear and complete understanding of Christ and his work. Number two, it's direct access to the Father in prayer. Jesus promises these two things, as you can see in your outline. He does it twice in two cycles. He he promises the two things, and he comes around and promises the same two things again in more detail. So let's look at these these two cycles and the promises given in them uh, briefly. The first cycle comes in verses 23 through 24. Look with me there. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now these verses are a bit challenging, but I hope after we're done you will see the meaning quite clearly. Um, The first thing Jesus promises his disciples is found in verse 23a. The gift of complete understanding. The removal of confusion and questions concerning Christ's teaching. So look at 23 again. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. You will ask nothing of me. Now this phrase, in that day, is clearly a reference to the day of his resurrection, right? It's the day he's been talking about. In the day about which I've spoken in verses 16 through 22, the day in which I will see you and your hearts will rejoice. In that day, this is going to happen. But that phrase, in that day, is also pregnant with meaning. If you know your Bibles well, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's regularly used for the final day. In that day, the the end time day, in which all of God's purposes will have been fulfilled. That's what we learned last week. Christ's resurrection ushers in the end time. So a massive turning point in salvation history takes place at the resurrection of Christ. And because of that, disciples have been given incredible privileges. Privileges which characterize the end of history. Privileges which characterize the fulfillment, the end time promises of God and the fulfillment of his plans are given to you. Because of Christ's resurrection. So what's going to happen on that day? Well, following the resurrection, Jesus' disciples will not ask him anything. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean the disciples will not make requests of Christ anymore. They won't ask anything of him. They won't ask him for things. The next verse talks about disciples asking things from the Father. So it seems to sort of strengthen that idea. You're going to ask the Father for things. You're not going to ask me for things. But I don't think that's what what Jesus means here. He does not mean that in that day you're no longer going to make requests from Jesus. You're not going to ask Jesus for things anymore. In fact, back in chapter 14, verse 14, he said, If you ask me... Anything in my name, I'll do it. So clearly he anticipates disciples will still make requests from him. Also, without going into too much detail here, the the two other times this verb in chapter 16, verse 23, for ask is used in the upper room when the disciples are asking, it never means requesting. 
it always means something like to inquire or to ask a question. So so look at chapter 16, verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me. The same verb. They're not asking for something. They're, They're inquiring. They're asking a question for clarity. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him again because they're confused. They're they're trying to get clarity. That's what I think the nuance is is here. The NASB captures this well in its, its translation. If you have a NASB, it says, and in that day you will ask me no question. So throughout the upper room, the disciples have been asking questions of, of Jesus, questioning him about his meaning and his words. They're, they're confused. They don't understand what he's talking about most of the time. But here Jesus promises that in the day of his resurrection, all of that will change. They will no longer ask Jesus any more questions. Well, why? Because it will all become plain. Everything that he's been teaching them in the upper room, as confusing as it has been, once the resurrection happens, it will all make sense. So why does Jesus say this here? What is the promise being given to disciples and to us here? I think Jesus says this in order to reassure his disciples that this confusion that they're experiencing will not last forever. He encourages them, wait a little bit longer and everything will become clear. It's a great promise, not just for them, but, but, but for us as well. We who live on this side of the cross and the resurrection have been given clear and complete understanding about what Christ accomplished and about what he taught. The resurrection was the lens that makes sense of everything that Christ taught in his ministry. And the gift of the Spirit was to enable the disciples to look through that lens of what Christ accomplished in the cross and resurrection to understand everything Christ was teaching about. But before that happened, they could not understand it. They couldn't get it. In other words, the application for us is that Christ's teaching about what he was going to accomplish is no longer a mystery for us. We know through the apostles' teaching in Scripture all that Christ accomplished. All that that means, everything that the New Testament gives you is the result of this promise. We understand how it works now how it all comes together, why he had to be crucified and raised, and what he accomplished through that, and why the cross wasn't his greatest defeat, but the moment of his greatest triumph. It's all clear for us now. That's what he's promising. That's not the only thing he promises. He also promises the gift of direct access to the Father. So look at verse 23 again. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. That's the first promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So in the day of Christ's resurrection, disciples will have a new, unique, direct access to the Father in prayer. In verse 23, Jesus gives his disciples this this promise that whatever they ask, the Father, in Jesus' name, the Father will give it to them. Now here, asking clearly means making requests, asking for things, right? It's a different verb in in Greek. 
In that day, disciples will ask things directly from the Father, and he will respond by giving them their requests. What's amazing about this is this is the same kind of confidence and relationship with the Father that Christ enjoyed throughout his ministry. Remember by the tomb of of Lazarus, what Jesus said. They took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. The Father always hears and always responds to all of the Son's requests. And Jesus says that is the same privilege now given to each and every one of his disciples. That's amazing. Whatever you ask the Father, he will give you. This isn't the first time we've heard such a promise in the, in the upper room. We've seen it multiple times. <clears throat> but on what grounds can you have that kind of confidence? And is there anything here in the context that would shape and, and tell us the kinds of requests that are guaranteed this, this kind of an answer? I think Jesus answers both of those questions for us in that little phrase, in my name. Disciples make requests directly to the Father in Jesus' name. That's the grounds of their confidence and it shapes their requests. What does that mean? In my name. In my name is it occurred in just about every verse that Jesus has taught about prayer in the upper room. What does it mean, in my name? Well, I think we get a clue. We look through the Gospel of John. Jesus repeatedly says that he has come in whose name? In the Father's name, right? Everything Jesus does, he says, I've done in my Father's name. John 5, 43, I've come in my Father's name. John 10, 25, the works I do, I do in my Father's name. John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. In other words, he's come in the Father's name means he's come as the Father's representative agent. He's been sent to represent the Father, and he's been sent to carry out the Father's work and the Father's purposes. In other words, everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said, he said and did in the name of his Father, on the authority of his Father for the purposes of his Father, for the glory of his Father, as the Father's representative on earth, who's been sent to do the Father's work. But then we remember that in the upper room, Jesus has been commissioning his disciples into the world as he's departing. They, you, will be sent in Jesus' name as his representative witnesses to continue to carry out Jesus' mission through the Spirit. So that's what in my name means here as as well. Disciples approach the Father to confidently make requests from him because they are Christ's representatives who have been left here after Christ returns to the Father after his resurrection. We make these requests to the Father as we are simply emissaries representatives of Christ left here on earth, not carrying out our own purposes, not about our own thing in this life, but about the mission of Christ. 
disciples have been given just as direct access to the Father and just as much certainty that those requests will be granted as Christ himself possessed. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I think the first thing is that prayer in Jesus' name is not simply some little magical phrase we stick on at the end of our prayers to make them work. It's loaded with significance. It's the very basis on which we pray. It's the reason we have confidence in prayer. And it should direct and shape everything that we pray for. So let me give you a few things. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? I think from this we could say, number one, prayer in Jesus' name is prayer on the authority of Christ. We have direct access to the Father and the promise of answered prayer, not on our own authority, but because we've been ransomed by Christ. We've been made one with Christ. We are in union with Christ. And we've been commissioned by Christ as his representatives in this world. So we pray on the authority of Christ. Number two, prayer in Jesus' name means prayer is for the purposes of Christ. It means we approach the Father as those who have been left behind enemy lines. He's come. He's brought us out of the world. He's made us his own. He's gone back to the Father. He's left us here in the midst of a world that hates Christ, that hates us. And yet he's given us the same line of communication to the Father that he had while in ministry. Our primary task is to represent Christ and carry out his mission in the world, and we're going to need the Father's help. We'll have access to the Father to supply whatever we need in this mission. Number three, prayer in Jesus' name is prayer for the glory of Christ. The glory of the Father is what drove all that Christ did and prayed for. And the glory of Christ ought to be the aim of all that we pray for as well. It's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So the question is this. Do you pray like that? Do I pray like that? I think our problem is that most of our requests have little or nothing to do with Jesus' name. We often do not pray relying on Christ's authority remembering that in ourselves we have no right to access the Father and to expect an answer from Him. Our requests are often weak, lacking confidence, doubtful they even reach the Father's ear. It's because somehow we've forgotten that the only thing that gives us the right to approach the Father is that we come on Christ's name in His authority because we're in union with Him. That and that alone gives us The access, we start our prayers in Jesus' name. We don't end our prayers in Jesus' name. We begin in Jesus' name in the confidence that we have access to the Father through Christ. And our requests are often disconnected from our identity as those who've been left here in Christ's name. You've been left in Christ's name, but our prayers are often disconnected from that. We misuse prayer. To use John Piper's illustration, we we turn it into a domestic intercom to call up another pillow instead of a wartime walkie-talkie to call in air support. That is what Christ is telling us. It's the purpose. It's, It's to be shaped by the mission 
for which we've been left. And as such, our requests often have little to do with Christ's glory. So the point is not that we should only pray certain kinds of prayers. We should pray all kinds of prayers for every circumstance in life, not just those ministry-related things. But the point is, is that this is what shapes them. This is what drives them. This is the confidence where it comes from. So examine your prayers. Your prayers reveal what defines your life. And when it is Christ and Christ's purposes, you can have great confidence. So pray in Jesus' name. No, that's not a meaningless phrase you tack to the end of your prayers. It's the authority on which you come before the Father. And this prayer in Jesus' name is the unique gift of this post-resurrection age. Look back at verse 24. He says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus doesn't mean that disciples had never prayed to the Father before. Of course they had. Old Testament saints obviously prayed to God, God the Father. He means that they had never prayed in Jesus' name, as we just explained it here, with that kind of access to the Father. But after the resurrection, you're commanded to pray like this. You see that? He says, ask, make requests of the Father, And you have this certain guarantee that you will receive. So what's new now is the basis on which you come to the Father and the certainty of answer to your requests. And this kind of prayer is the pathway to true and full joy. Look what he says. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Joy's been promised six times in these five verses here. It is what is to characterize disciples in the post-resurrection age. In time, resurrection joy. Back in chapter 15, verse 11, we learned the joy-filled life is the result of disciples abiding in Christ, bearing fruit for Christ. And I think he says the same thing here. It's as you live as a disciple in this world of hate, representing Christ, seeking to bear fruit for Christ, living out Christ's mission, seeking the Father to work in and through you. And as you see the Father do that in this world, that brings incredible, true, and lasting joy. It will be full as you see the the Father working through you for Christ's sake in the world in response to your prayers. So pray, ask in Jesus' name. So those are the two gifts that he offers his disciples in this age after his resurrection. And just so that we wouldn't miss them, he does it again. Cycle number two. In verses 25 through 28. And in these verses, he's going to unpack these two promises again in more detail. So just as in verse 23a, so now in verse 25, Jesus promises the gift of complete understanding again. Veiled teaching will give way to plain teaching and full understanding of the Father. Look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you in figurative speech. 
Now, this word figurative speech means something like puzzling statements, enigmatic, veiled sayings, words which are not immediately obvious or apparent. And that these things, he said, said these things, I think, refers back to verse 16. A little while and you'll see me. These two little whiles. What does that mean? It's cryptic. But I think that these things also applies to the many things that he's taught them in the upper room and throughout his ministry in the Gospel of John. He's told them many enigmatic sayings full of meaning, but that could not be understood right away. And they couldn't be understood until they were understood through the events of the cross and the resurrection. Have you all ever seen those little little toys, I guess, is that card? You can't see anything. It's just sort of like scribbles on it, but then you put the little lens over in front of it. You can sort of see a picture under it. You know what I'm talking about? Sort of the idea here. He's given them these truths packed in these enigmatic sayings, but as soon as the resurrection happens, then you'll be able to understand those teachings. So one of the reasons why the disciples are confused throughout the upper room is because Jesus has been teaching them the great significance of what he's going to do, but he's taught them in these veiled sayings. And he did that because the disciples have no category for a crucified and risen Messiah. They should have. The Old Testament talked about it. But because of their human weakness and unbelief, they missed it. And so Jesus knows that they will be unable to bear the full weight of what he was going to do. It's what he says back in chapter 16, verse 12. I have much to teach you, but you cannot bear it. They cannot bear the full teaching. Everything that Christ was going to do in the church age, what he was going to accomplish, they couldn't bear it yet. They don't understand his cross and resurrection. And so he gives them teaching packed with meaning, but which will only be fully understandable once the events of the cross and resurrection happen. And then through the help of the Spirit, they'll be able to look back through it and make sense of all of Christ's words and what he accomplished. In other words, since they have no category for a crucified and risen Messiah, they're unable to bear the fullness of his teaching, and that's why he gives them figurative language. So as soon as it happens, they look back and his teaching, his words would explode with meaning. They would get it. It would all make sense. That's what he promised back in chapter 14, verse 29. It says, now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, then you may believe. Believe there means have the full-orbed belief as a Christian. The fullness of everything that I've done happen after. And this happens all through the Gospel of John. You know, chapter 2, Jesus gives this Enigmatic saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They don't get it, but verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, then they remembered, and then they understood it. Chapter 12, again, it happens, the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when he was glorified, the cross, the resurrection, the gift of the Spirit, then they remembered and made sense out of it all. It happened in the upper room. He's washing the disciples' feet. He says, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. They didn't understand the significance of the foot washing. Peter said, stop doing that. But afterward, after the resurrection, through that lens, it will all make sense. So he gives them this figurative speech, 
which they do not understand in its fullness, but when the resurrection happens, then they will grasp the fullness of his teaching. That's what he says in the rest of the verse. Go back to verse 25. The hour is coming. That word hour, again, is packed with significance. Clearly points forward to his cross and and resurrection. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. At that hour, when it's all been accomplished, then Christ's teaching will no longer be veiled. He will speak plainly or openly about the Father. No longer in this kind of veiled teaching. After the resurrection, he will no longer need to speak that way because they will have the framework. They will have the categories for a risen and crucified Messiah. And Jesus says, after that's been accomplished, he'll speak plainly about the Father. Now that's interesting. I'm going to speak to you plainly about the Father. That's interesting because his veiled saints were all about the significance of his cross and resurrection. But, but why does he say here, I'm going to tell you about the Father? I think it's because the Father was most fully and most clearly revealed through the events of Christ's cross and resurrection. When you understand that, you understand the Father. Following the resurrection, not only would the cross make sense, but so would the Father himself in all his glory and purposes. That's what's been given to you, brothers and sisters, disciples, post-resurrection. Complete, clear insight into the totality of the Father's plans and purposes and glory, which have been slowly, progressively being revealed throughout salvation history, but now have reached their full climax and display through Christ. Now through Christ, he's been put on HD clarity display for every one of us to, to see. In other words, only you as a Christian have that kind of an insight. Now you say that in the world, you get the world hating you, and that's what Jesus said. Only you have that kind of insight into God. Only you know the fullness of God's being with that kind of clarity in that way because you know Christ and the resurrection. Christ's once-veiled teaching will be made fully known through the events of the cross and resurrection and the Spirit who will enable them to see it. This is what Jesus, John has said from the beginning and Jesus has promised. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made Him known. That's what He promised in John 15, 15 as well. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, It is this most dramatic of divine self-disclosures in this shame and triumph of death, in this eschatological victory of death and resurrection, that the ultimate significance of Jesus is to be found, and therefore also the clearest display of the character and purposes of God. And that's the privilege that's been given to you, brothers and sisters. There no longer remains anything about Christ's person, or His work, or His teaching, or what he accomplished that hasn't been revealed and communicated to you and explained for us in Scripture. And as we behold that, we're beholding the very glory of the Father himself. But if that were not enough, Jesus gives us the second gift again. Number two, the gift of direct access to the Father. Disciples will have direct access to the Father who loves them. Look at verse 26. In that day, 
you will ask in my name. He says, in that day again, you see that? In the day of my resurrection, this turning point of history, from this day forward, it will usher in end-time fellowship with God, unparalleled access to the Father. And he repeats again the same promise from verse 23. You will ask, implied my Father. You will ask the Father in my name. But to make the significance of this point even clearer, look what he says in the rest of the verse, verse 26. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus says he does not mean that prayer in his name means that whatever request you as a disciple may have, you take those to Jesus, and then Jesus needs to go take those up to the Father on your behalf. You pray to Jesus, and then Jesus takes those to the Father for you. Jesus says that is not what he means. Jesus says, when I say that you will make requests from the Father in my name, my point is to highlight the fact that you have direct access to the Father and do not need me to ask for things on your behalf. The purpose is to highlight the amazing privilege and boldness with which you can access the Father. To ask things from him in the name of Christ, confident that he will answer. I mean, who do disciples think that they they are? They could just waltz up to the throne of God and get an ear with the Almighty? That he would give the same kind of attention to you as he gives to Christ? Who, Who do you think you are? And that's what we're tempted to think often. It's why we pray with such little confidence. But Jesus says that is the very kind of privilege and boldness with which disciples approach the Almighty. But why? Why in the world would you have that kind of access to the Father? Well, he tells you. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. It's not as though Jesus alone loves you and he has to go convince the Father to love you. But the Father loves you directly. After all, it's the Father who chose you and who sent the Son, out of his love. You're given the the amazing privilege of direct access to God's eternal throne because you're approaching the Almighty God who himself loves you. As a disciple, you do not, you should not think that you have to twist God's arm or manipulate him or work really hard to convince him to hear you and answer your prayers as though he is largely unconcerned about you. No, he himself loves you. You do not need to even pray to Jesus in hopes that Jesus will deliver those up to the Father. Or as Roman Catholics, you pray to a saint. And if you're lucky, that saint will give it to Mary and she might take it up to Jesus. And if you're really lucky, he'll take it on up to the Father. It's not, no, the Father himself loves you directly. And because he loves you so affectionately, therefore you have direct access straight up to his throne with your requests and with confidence in his ear. But why does he love you? Jesus tells us. There's many reasons, but Jesus gives us two. And both have to do with the way you have treated his son. He loves you because of the way you've treated his son as a disciple. Number one, the father's love for disciples is based on the disciples' love for Christ. Look at verse 27. The father himself loves you because you have loved me. 
This is not the initial love of the Father to you in the gospel. This is his response to of love to you as a disciple who's already a disciple. We've seen this already in John several times. Does it mean that your confidence in prayer should go up and down as your perception of loving Christ goes up and down? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. You love Christ. Yes, that's growing, but it's nevertheless real that you've experienced Christ's love and love him in, in return. That's why the Father loves you. You love his Son. And because he loves his Son, he loves all those who loves his Son. Number two. Father's love for disciples is based on disciples' true and full faith in Christ. Look at the rest of verse 27. He loves you because you love me and believed that I came from God. I've come from the Father and I've come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's a concise summary of his entire mission. It affirms his preexistence, his commission, his incarnation, what he accomplished. His glory, his return to the Father, his deity, sonship, victory, exaltation. In other words, that's what a disciple is. They've received Christ. They've embraced him. They love him. That's why the Father loves them. That's why they have direct access to the Father in, in prayer. So those are the two extraordinary post-resurrection gifts that Christ promises you, his disciples. So this week, go and live like it. Live like people who know the fullness of the revelation of God in Christ. Clarity in the gospel. You've given insight that's never been revealed up to this point in salvation history. And you know the fullness of Christ's teaching. Let that fill you with confidence as you represent Christ in the world. And then live like people who have the incredible privilege of direct access to the Father who himself loves you. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the clarity that you have given us through the resurrection, what he's accomplished, and then through spirit-inspired scriptures that we can know your son and have end-time relationship with you now. Oh, help us not to be distracted by this world, but to live like it. Live like people about the mission of Christ in every sphere of our life, every part of it. People filled with joy as we are praying in in Jesus' name. We love you, Father, and we ask for your blessing on service ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.